Hey, Changemakers. Welcome back to Cause Talk Radio. I'm Allie Murphy with Engage for Good. I'm back today with another bonus episode. Like last week, today's episode is a rerun, and we're talking about corporate disaster responses and initiatives. Why? Well, because this episode featuring JetBlue is one of our all-time most popular episodes, and because the topic is timely as we traverse through wildfire season, hurricane season, and, well, the pandemic we find ourselves in. So tune in to today's episode to learn all about JetBlue's top priorities after a disaster event, crew members, customers, and community, why it's critical for companies to contribute in ways that leverage their internal assets, the different phases of disaster recovery, and the importance of empowering a local community to get back on its feet, why more collaboration between companies is critical in a disaster, and the steps JetBlue has taken to form tighter alliances, what JetBlue looks for in nonprofit partners, like-minded organizations that are nimble, flexible, and align with JetBlue's brand, and so much more. So buckle up and get ready to dive in. This show was originally released in October of 2018. Here are longtime hosts Megan Strand and Joe Waters with Isima Gibbs, JetBlue's Vice President of CSR and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Enjoy. of Cause Talk Radio. On the line with me, of course, is Megan Strand. Hey, Megan. Hello there. Megan, this is a very important season, and I'm not talking about back to school either. What are you talking about, Joe? You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about this is the season of hurricanes, disasters, stuff happens in the fall. All right? Scary. And I could use another four-letter word to describe it, but I'm just going to stick it at stuff, right? <laughs> stuff well, actually, a four-letter word. word. <laughs> yeah, I'm slipping. I'm slipping. It's, it's a summer. It's a summer. So here is what we have, Megan. On the line with us right now is Isima Gibbs, and she is the Director of Corporate Social Responsibility at JetBlue. Hey, Isima, how's it going? It's good. How you doing? Isima, Happy this summer. is... This is the season of stuff, right? I mean, <laughs> this, this is, is when stuff, stuff. This is when stuff happens. So we are talking uh, today about uh, disaster giving, and JetBlue has done a lot of that. Um, and hopefully, we're hoping that in fall 2018, there is going to be a lot. You'll have nothing to give because there will be no disasters. But you never know. But one of the things crossed. that Megan and, and I. I know. Fingers crossed, right? One of the things that Megan and I thought we would start with is we are kind of, uh, we're almost, well, I guess we're past a little bit the one-year anniversary of the, the, you know, the back-to-back hurricane season that we had last year. Can you kind of summarize for us or give us a brief overview of what JetBlue did last year to respond to these natural, natural disasters? So there are a few things that JetBlue does when there's a natural disaster or any type of disaster, whether it be a shooting or um, anything that that could possibly impact our crew members. So the first thing we do is we check on our crew members. Is everybody safe? We have a automatic calling system that gets in touch with people that live in cities. And when you work for an airline, you could very well work in a city that you don't live in. So it's important for us to have accurate records and check on our crew members. The next thing we do is make sure that um, 
you know, our infrastructure is fine. And then how's the city doing? So we have check-ins with the um, our political affiliations and associations in those cities. We um, check in with any partners we might have. We want to make sure that everybody's okay. And that's pretty consistent when there is a disaster. Last year, however, um, the hurricanes were so impactful, we had to figure out ways to give and ways to help not only our crew members, but the customers and the, the residents in the areas that were impacted by the, the disaster. So it took a lot of coordination um, and a lot of people getting together here at JetBlue to say, okay, this is what's going on. We need to do this. And our response needs to be this. And what was just as you, you were alluding to, mm-hmm. because it was back to back to back, that response became greater and greater and greater. Can you give us an idea, just an overview of the types of things you did? I know, particularly for Puerto Rico, you were flying planes down there. I think you were the only major carrier that even flew to Puerto Rico. I'm sure you donated money. Obviously, you did a lot for your employees. But what can you just give us a spectrum of the types of, of giving that you did last year? Sure. So, you know, the the gift of flight is what we were able to do immediately. So as soon as we were able to fly to these areas, we sent um, supplies in and we sent first responders in. That's always important. Um, And then for each of the areas, we created a small mini plan that would not only help the area, but um, our crew members. And I think Puerto Rico is, is really a good example of the things that we did. Um, you know, one of the things that that is dear to um, the hearts of Puerto Rican um, people on the island and people who are from Puerto Rican from Puerto Rico that are in the United States, they they talk about the island being 100 by 35, and so that became the um, the rally cry for our campaign. It was 100 by 35. How do we help the island of of Puerto Rico, which is 100 miles long and Mm. 35 miles wide? Um, And when our CEO sent that out initially in in a a blanket letter, it, it took all of the corporate talk out of the letter because he used that um, that symbolism. He, he made reference to 100 by 35 and people felt that he was really talking to them. Um, so the things that we did were, you know, making sure that we flew water down and, and um, made sure that our crew members were fine. We um, For Thanksgiving, we held Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners in hotels for the, the public so that they could have a sense of normalcy during the holidays. Um, we did Christmas gifts during the or ho- and holiday gifts for folks during the holidays because really it was important for us to, like I said, create some sense of normalcy um, after the disaster. We, um, you know, I, I know there was a, the airlines took a hit for raising fares um, to and from these destinations, and we definitely did not do that. In fact, we publicly went out and said that we would keep our fares at at a, at a certain rate for a certain amount of time, just so people could feel like they had they didn't a didn't have to rush to get on a flight or to, to go check on their loved ones, but b that they knew that we were not trying to price, price gouge during this time. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it was waving bags or providing services, children's services or bringing care packages down. We formed um, many warehouses for our crew members and um, eventually and their neighbors so that, you know, you could get food and generators and things that people needed that they just weren't able to get on the island. And then as the island started to 
to come back, we wanted to make sure that we were um, that we were purchasing things on islands to help establish or to, to help jumpstart the economy. So that was really important to us. Um, and then, you know, what what can we do to what does the government need? How, to, how can we help them? Who what are the first responders looking for? How can we help them? We really tried to have a broad based um, giving plan and support system. But we really wanted to make sure that it was um, that we weren't bringing items to the island that didn't have a home. So, you know, mm-hmm. you see all of the anybody in, in our field knows how. Uh, a winter coat and a prom dress is not what people need during this no. of disaster. <laughs> and people give what they people give what they what they think people need. Um, and I think whether it was Sandy Hook or or other disasters where they had to in Sandy Hook they had to get a warehouse for all of the teddy bears and bicycles that people sent to that area. So we really were trying to be thoughtful in in what we were sending down to not only Puerto Rico, but the other islands that were affected. And, you know, Houston, to be quite honest, what do people need and how do we support them with with what they need, not with what we think they need? So we worked with um, one of the food banks here in New York, the New York Food Bank, to make sure that we had end-to-end support. So the food that we collected and we transported on a flight went to the food bank in Puerto Rico. So we knew mm-hmm. it was going to someplace that had a means to di- distribute. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, the small the small mom and pop organizations can really help a little bit, but they don't have the broad reach to distribute um, in the way that we were sending supplies down. And eventually no. we ended up getting a, char- uh, a cargo plane because we just, you know, our little planes couldn't do it all. Right. And we just wanted to make sure that we were consistently providing um, and meeting the needs of the the people on mm-hmm. the wonderful, beautiful island of Puerto Rico. Mm. Now, Isima, with both disasters happening last year, I mean, how challenging was that for you to and for the company to kind of handle a dual response like that of like, wow, we're dealing with two major things there. How do we you know, how do you deal with something like that as a company in terms of resources think- and time management and all those things? It was it was challenging. I mean, for me to to say that it wasn't challenging um, would be disingenuous. It was very challenging for us to deal with it. We um, pulled most of our resources and um, and set up what we call command stations. And so, when you came into work, you didn't report to your desk or your office. You went to the command station, and that's where we worked for months. Um, we had you know, everybody's attention was kind of focused on that. And and so you were trying to do your day job and trying to do this work as well. One of the things that helped us tremendously is our reservation system is based in Salt Lake City. And a lot of our reservationists, um, you may or may not know, work from home. Um, And so we were able to bring a large workforce from Salt Lake City here to help with some of the phone calls and some of the things that we just needed to do to make – to make all of our commitments come to fruition and um, to make sure that we were taking care of our customers and crew members in a way that was thoughtful and um, meaningful. And so we were able to bring in some support, but we worked around pretty much around the clock um, for quite a long time to make sure that we were, JetBlue was doing all it could to be helpful to St. Martin or and Puerto Rico and the city of of Houston um, and and other 
areas that were impacted by by these hurricanes. You have such an impressive response, I see, man. There's so many pieces that you've just outlined for us that go online in times of disaster. And again, last year you had back-to-back-to-back disasters that you had to deal with. So I'm sure as a team, at some point, you were able to take a breath and say, oh my gosh, okay, now that's behind us. What did we learn? Where were the cracks in our system? What do we need to fortify more? Can you reflect a little bit about some of the lessons you might have learned uh, from the past year and in this corporate disaster giving response? So um, I think that disaster fatigue is real. Um, mm. it, it, yep. it started to show itself internally. We, um, at, you know, our crew members wanted to give. And so initially um, that was very robust and it started to wane as, you know, you go through your third or fourth hurricane. Um that we needed to have um, satellite radios in all of our cities, and we didn't, and so we made that um, a priority to, to because we had general manager a general manager in St. Martin. We we couldn't get in touch with her, um, and so you know that was really important. I think the other thing that we learned internally is the importance of everybody knowing their roles and responsibilities and doing that, mm-hmm. um, and in your quest to help, I think people, um, we might have been duplicating some efforts. And so just how do you, how does everybody stay in their lane? And then, you know, holding back in our effort and our quest to be helpful. Um, sometimes you want to do things quickly and you can't assess a need until you assess a need. So you can't determine that the need is water when the need might be coal mm. or a generator. So you have to really see what the the need is and try to meet the need rather than assuming that you know what the need is. So I think it's, you know, also getting everybody to, to say, okay, let's just wait and see. That waiting and see period, whether it's a day or two days, is so hard for this team. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really um, requires some discipline that I just don't think we have yet. So, um, <laughs> you know, we're working on it. We've mm-hmm. interviewed, um, you know, there was a, a team that went around and interviewed probably close to 80 people, had a really comprehensive um comprehensive solutions and comprehensive thoughts and comprehensive um, just data points that and some of them were pretty consistent and we've used that to kind of strengthen our our internal process so that the next time um, we can the playbook is a little bit stronger and a little bit better. You know, one of the things I was thinking about, Asimir, is with one of the things I like about JetBlue is I think you do a really good job communicating the things that you're doing without being self-promotional, mm-hmm. right? You Because, I mean, what we know for, as cost marketers and corporate social respons- responsibility folks is that consumers want us to tell them about the great things that we're doing. But you know, as well as I do, and Megan knows, that that's a fine balance, right? That you can't Absolutely. do it without seeming too promotional, without taking the focus off the, the crisis or the disaster or what you're doing and making it too much about you. How do you balance that? Like, where does that come from in terms of your communications? I think the balance is that for a long time, at, we at JetBlue didn't even talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. And so as we've 
as our CorpCom team has morphed and grown and and changed shape, I think it's helped us figure out a way to be um, to provide information without being boastful. Um, and that's a really fine line, like you said. I think you know we struggle with that sometimes, but. For the things that we were doing in Puerto Rico, we never did a press release. It's not like we wanted credit for that. Um, we we worked with our partner Atlas Air and got a 747 to send down supplies, and that was really huge huge for us. We worked a long time to make that come to fruition, but um, and we didn't send a press release about that. But we supported so many other nonprofits that were doing that were benefiting from it that they were able to tell our story. So. I think that we we were the recipient of doing good work and having other people speak on our behalf. Um, and then when we announced the initiative that we called 100 by 35, we wanted people to to know what we were doing because it was it covered a um, unmet needs and rebuilding efforts and fundraising awareness and relief pricing and airlift and um, so it has so many different components and we wanted people to feel like they not only could participate in some way, but also that they really could hold us accountable because we Mm. published the list. Mm -hmm. Um, And so some of it was to make sure that we were letting people know that we are going to do this and this is how we're going to do it. We said that we would keep, um, we would waive baggage fees until November. We said that we would keep um, reduced fares in until November. And, And we wanted people to hold us accountable to that. And we wanted people to know that we were serious about trying to provide help in so many different ways. So it really is a balancing act. Um, sometimes it really is the whole, so that people can say, you know, you said you were going to do this and you did. And some of it really is so that you can benefit from some of the good work that we're doing. I see, Matt, just logistically, is there an actual crisis communications team that gets activated in these times of crisis that's able to work together across multiple platforms to to push out that messaging? Because to Joe's, Joe's point, I really do feel like you of all companies do an amazing job of communicating what's happening and what's going on. And you might see something on social or you might see something in a media release. But and it always, to your point earlier about it being, you know, having to wait and figure out what the need is. I've always felt, especially last year watching JetBlue, I was like, oh my gosh, they're on top of it. Look at, they're doing this and they're doing that. So is there a crisis communications team that gets uh, activated or do you just do a really great job communicating internally across all departments? So if the the CorpCom team were here, they would be laughing hysterically. Um, and so, you know, I thought it may be like I see him standing on a desk, like yelling at everyone. Like, I love that visual. <laughs> not pretty, not pretty. We do, um, we do work with a an agency, but no, it really is our team that is executing communications in a crisis. The thing that we do, and I think the thing that's been helpful for us is that every airline has a group of people who respond in a crisis should a tragedy happen um, within the company, an aircraft incident, um, anything like that. We have that as well. But these are some of the same people and the same skills that we use to activate when there's a disaster that is a natural disaster or when the pulse shooting happens. So we are able to 
to activate our team. They know how, what happens when they get activated. They know how to, um, we, you know, our test team or our communications team knows what to do when there's um, a disaster because we drill um, we drill because you have to drill as an airline, and then we activate during these times of disaster. Um, so our teams are kind of strong in that way, and they have their their legs under them because they've we've drilled. We we've practiced some of the things that um, we would do in a in a different type of disaster. And so um, the the emergency response team um, gets activated, or whether it's the um, care team that gets activated, or whether it's the you know community. I mean, um, crisis communications team. Um, you have different hats, and you know how to put those hats on during different times of of crisis or need. What would you, you know, one of the things that's great about the work that companies do in this area is I find, Isima, that people are more than willing to share what they're doing with other companies because they realize that when a disaster happens, no one company can solve people's problems. It needs to be a communal effort, right? It takes a village. If you had to give advice to another company that was trying to assist in after a disaster, what would you tell them? What, what do you think is the most important thing to have in place? Is it, you know, and I, I guess what I'm curious, too, is it's almost like, you know, don't don't react to the da- disaster. Like it's almost like stop planning now for that disaster, maybe not even in 2018, but 2019. You know what I mean? Like because you have to have that infrastructure in place. But I'll let you answer the question. I mean, I think that, you know, the the one thing that companies can do in a time of disaster is seek first to understand and to be understood um, and really make sure that they are meeting the need. Um, and then I think, you know, we have planes, and so to ask us for, um, I'm making this up, but it, we mm. can transport people. So right. that's that's how we can help. So who right. are the partners right. that we work with that might need to be on the ground during the time of disaster? Um, and then, oh, by the way, partner, you have boots on the ground already. Yeah. And so what does that, what do they need? How can we get that to them? We're mm-hmm. not a cargo carrier, so we mm-hmm. our bend space is limited, but mm-hmm. we know cargo carriers. How can we bridge that gap for you? So I think um, there's so much work that can be done if people don't care who gets the credit. Mm-hmm. And I think yep. um, that, that companies have to work together to ensure that the needs are being met and that there's not, you know, you have to really check your ego at the door, aircraft mm-hmm. door, whatever you want to, you know, you have yeah. to really check your ego so right. that you can really make have an impact. Yeah. So check your ego, leverage your assets and work with partners. Those are the key things. Yes. For, yeah. for us, those are definitely key. And listening. And I seem to just shared something right before that in her answer, which was they do a lot of drilling. So practice, quite frankly. And I think there are certain industries that have to do that. You're probably regulated to drill in the event of, of a crisis, but not all industries are are regulated to do that. So um, I think that's a great lesson also. And then to your point, just a question I seem about collaborating with other companies. Is that something outside of the cargo plane example that you gave? Is that something that JetBlue does regularly? And can you see a scenario in which more collaboration could help in times of a disaster? Or is it just absolutely too chaotic to even make that happen on the ground? I think I think more collaboration can is, is always better. I don't think that 
during a, a crisis that it's easy. Um, but it's it's definitely important, I think, that to do as much collaboration as possible because if we ever sent a plane out and it wasn't completely full and one of our competitors is sending a plane out and it wasn't completely full, what could we have done to send two full planes out? So I think that, um, you know, we have to, like I said, you know, check our logos at the door and see how we can work together. And I think mm-hmm. these last last year was it it was taxing on on our industry. It was taxing on a lot of industries. And so, you know, we've made the the commitment to try to know who our counterparts are in um, in our industry so that we can reach out and do things that might be a little bit more collaborative and not necessarily um, operating in a silo. You know, if there's clearance, when the airport is finally clear and you can land, um, if we have water and we're going in and you haven't gotten the ability to go in yet, let me make sure that your team down there has water. So there's I just, just there's a little bit more dialogue that can happen to ensure that. Um, and we were very willing, especially at, you know, the airport community. If we had, we made sure that others had as well. If our crew members were um, being taken care of and once they were, they were situated, we were happy to help and share and assist um, others. And, you know, I think that spirit, that esprit de corps spirit really, really resonated um, specifically in Puerto Rico, but in other cities where we might have um, business partners, they might not be JetBlue crew members that are checking us in or, or that, you know, that are taking care of our customers. We took care of those business partners uh, no different than we were taking care of um, a JetBlue crew member. And we made sure that we made, um, that their that their company knew these people are taken care of, like their their salaries taken care. Of. We are taking care of our people, and we treated everybody the same. That we wanted to make sure that our crew members were absolutely taken care of because we knew as soon as we had the opportunity, they would take care of our customers in that same way. Amazing, I love it. And then in, when it comes to collaboration with nonprofit partners, it sounds like you already have many, many nonprofit partnerships in place that you just activate in times of disaster? Or is there ever an instance where there's a disaster and somewhere you don't have a nonprofit partner and you need to find one quickly? Does that ever happen? That does happen. I think for, um, you know, we we were pretty broad in who we were working with um, during times of disasters, but we did we did start working with one or two new partners just because... Um, the scope of disaster partnerships really focuses on disasters, right? And so they might not be focusing on, I'm going to make this up, book giving or reading or getting kids back into school. Mm-hmm. Or um, So we, we really wanted to broaden that a little bit because there were other things that were important to us um, and that were important to the crew members and the um and the people on island. And so we wanted to make sure that we were able to support in a really broad way and not so narrow that we were just giving to some of our disaster first responders. And when it comes to finding a new partner like that, are there specific criteria that you look for in a new partner? We are really protective of our brand. And so we try to find like-minded brands, even across 
disciplines. Um, and so nimble, being nimble is really important. Um, being flexible is really important. And um, being able to, you know, you have to be able to activate really quickly when you're working with us. And that's not necessarily, I'm not saying that's a, a feather in our cap. I mean, sometimes that's because we're, we, we're running on all cylinders and, and um, you know, need something without a lot of leeway and a lot of um, lead time. So, um, but, but you have to be those things. I think, um, and then a, a, if I don't know you as an organization, I have to be able to clearly verify your track record. Your due diligence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Isima, this has been so fantastic. We so appreciate you coming on to talk a little bit more about corporate disaster response at JetBlue. Is there a, a place online that people can find out more about what you do for the community and particularly in times of disaster? At JetBlue for good. Um, they can find out a little bit about what we do, what we do and um, including in times of disaster. Amazing. And we will include that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Isima. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always um, honored when somebody asks a question and wants me to provide the answer. Well, so we only ask, well, we love the, we work only ask the best. So thank you. That's right. <laughs> Joe. That's right. And Megan and I only fly up low. Right, Megan? <laughs> when I can, believe me, when <laughs> I can. It's my favorite airline for sure. <laughs> Joe, where can people find you online if they'd like to do that? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at Joe Waters or, of course, at SelfishGiving.com. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday morning. Don't miss it. Megan, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Megan Strand, and I tweet for Engage for Good at Engage for Good, which is also where you can find show notes for today's episode, EngageForGood.com, as well as SelfishGiving.com. And while you're online, be sure to subscribe to Cause Talk Radio on iTunes. We took a short break, but we're back um, with some new and exciting stuff. So make sure you subscribe if you have not done so already. And on behalf of Isima and Joe and myself, I'd like to thank you so, so much for joining us for this episode of Cause Talk Radio. And we'll talk to you next time. 